Dotnet Rocks episode 715 with guests Peter Moskowitz, Tolls Thompson, and Robbie Ingebrigtsen. Recorded live at Ordev Wednesday, November 9th, 2011. This episode is brought to you by Telerik and by Franklin's.net, training developers to work smarter and now offering video training on Silverlight 4 with Billy Hollis and SharePoint 2010 with Sahil Malik. Order online now at franklins.net. And now here are Carl and Richard. Hey, it's .NET Rocks, live at Ordev. This is Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. We're here at the end of the hall at Ordev as sessions are going on live in Malmo, Sweden. And we have red chairs. We do. We have a lot of red chairs that are empty sitting in front of us. So if you want to watch the interviews, we're going to be interviewing some of the speakers here. Come on down and watch. And if you're listening at home, just ignore I said that. Well, and sessions just started, too. The keynote just ended. First session's in, so everybody's very keen on the first day. They'll be more tired tomorrow. And we're here with Peter Moskowitz. Hi, Peter. Hi. How are you? Very good, thank you. Thanks for having me. Tell us about uh, what you're talking about here. I'm talking about a technology that I think is going to fundamentally change how we communicate over the web and how web applications are being built. Okay. What is that technology? It is a part of a new standard that is about to be accepted, part of HTML5. HTML5 brings a lot of good stuff uh, to the world, and uh, the aspect that I'm going to talk about is WebSockets. Ah, WebSockets. So, sockets in a browser exactly. in a, on the client side. Exactly. So, many of us have built client-server applications, and back in those days, we had the full power of having a full duplex bidirectional communication going on between our thick client and our backend services. Mm -hmm. So when we are sitting in the office and we open up our laptops and we are sitting in front of our desktops, that's exactly what we are doing. And as we extended this to the web, uh, basically we started using a browser, we started using HTTP, and this full duplex bidirectional nature of this communication broke. Uh, the full duplex nature is there between our application server and backend, but we don't have that between the browser and our application server. What you really here. mean by full duplex is the ability to handle events when data comes in to the client. Exactly. So yeah. HTTP is a request-response right. style communication where you are tied, basically your hands are tied by the technology that you are using. Right. At the same time, users are expecting a very rich, very real-time right. kind of experience. They want to see right away when th something is happening on their social network. They want to see right away when there's an instant message for them. They want to see right away when an index fund value changes so they can act on that. And simply the technology we are using today... Haven't we managed to largely pull that off with Ajax? I mean, you're getting that effect on Facebook all the time. Exactly. So we've been using... We're all still sorts polling of, with Ajax. Exactly. Still polling. We've, been, we've been using all sorts of creative solutions that we invented on top of HTTP, Ajax mm. and Comet technologies, but these have all sorts of problems. Probably the biggest one is that these are not standards-based. Uh, every customer that I have seen implement it in a different way. Yeah. Uh, also, they are not using the bandwidth available to us in, a, in an efficient way. Because they're constantly asking, is there anything new? Is there anything new? Is there anything new? Exactly. So um, 
basically polling and long polling are, are doing this. Do I, is there anything for me over yeah. on the server? And most of the time there's nothing. Right. And it's just a waste of, of time. Wait, wait, exactly. It's checking. Well, this has been one of the appeals to me of sockets from the very beginning is the idea that I can just leave this connection open. And when some data comes for me, boom, I get an event. It's just there. I just handle it. Exactly. And but the problem, of course, with sockets in an internet world is generally if you're not connecting on port 80, you have a firewall problem. Very, very good point. Yes. And that is one of the beauties of WebSockets, that WebSockets were designed to work with the existing web infrastructure. And WebSockets yeah. actually start their lives as an HTTP request. Hmm. So the browser starts, sends a request. We use the upgrade header and say, hey, I want to upgrade to WebSockets. And yeah. if the server supports WebSockets, then the HTTP connection steps down and it's a full duplex socket connection that yeah. takes over, that works over port 80 or port 443 because WebSockets, just like HTTP, have a secure counterpart, uh, WebSocket secure. Well, you know, you don't have to convince me. Um, uh, I'm, I love the fact that we have now full duplex communication over port 80. It's been a long time coming. And, you know, quite frankly, I've been trying to solve that problem myself and just resigned to the fact that I'm not going to use port 80. I know. And the fact that this is a an open industry standard and all the browsers started supporting it, there's kind of an arms race with the browsers supporting uh, WebSockets. This is kind of quite a unique opportunity for all of us. I mean, we the industry, ha industry has not come together in such a way in a very, very long time. I mean, all the way from Microsoft to Google, through Cisco, through Mozilla, pretty much everybody supports uh, WebSockets and HTML5. Didn't the, the Chrome guys do an early implementation of this? They ended up having to yank? Yeah, so Chrome uh, yeah. is is in the forefront of supporting uh, all these technologies, but all the other uh, vendors are coming out, even companies that historically have not been in the forefront of supporting the most recent open industry technologies, they are jumping on it and they are they are providing uh, support. Yeah. But we had a we had a false start. The, for the earlier versions of Chrome, they put a a pre uh, specification version of WebSockets right. that had some security problems. So the, the specification is going to be finalized in the spring. Was that also a problem with IE9? If I remember correctly. And, and the, actually the, the, the browser vendors are trying to pick up the latest and the greatest. And there is still a little bit of flux that was happening over the summer. Uh, one thing that was brought up in the spring was a security concern. There was a, a proxy poisoning attack that could be uh, could be done, and and the um, the standards committees fixed it. So in all the browsers that uh, that have WebSocket support today, and actually uh, Firefox nine uh, eight uh, just came out, uh, they have they have all addressed this and the updated uh, protocol uh, addresses. Well, and I think the big distinction there was Chrome just rolled it into their beta, so people used it, and then when the problem came along, they had to pull it, which broke people's apps. Where the IE nine guys always kept that prototype stuff as a separate download, so you had to really mean it if you wanted to have it, so you got away from the problems. Uh, that's what it was. Yeah, I knew that there was something there with that, but I remember now Chrome uh, had to yank itself because right. of the WebSocket security problem. Which, uh, that's not a technical issue, although it was a real issue. It's more of a policy of how you distribute so software issue that hurt people unnecessarily, I think. Exactly. I mean, part of the reason of this was that it, uh, I mean, the community got so excited about this, people mm. started uh, jumping on it right away, and the standard was still in flux. So uh, let's just think for a minute about some of the types of features that we can add to our HTML5 apps with full, full duplex communications, stuff that web programmers aren't probably thinking about. 
Right. So probably the most typical use of WebSockets could be in the financial industry where you see your stocks or your portfolio mm. changing in real time. And when you are trading, then having real time or as close to real time as possible information is extremely crucial. Yeah. But uh, another major, major industry where we see a lot of interest is in the gaming industry. Totally. Where you want to, to in a massively multiplayer games, you want to distribute people's statuses uh, is, is very, very critical. Mm. Another interesting one that we've been experimenting with lately is using uh, mobile devices, tablets, as remote controls for yes. games. So you open your browser in your desktop, you open your browser in your on your mobile device, and simply by taking advantage of the tilting and all sorts of uh, tactile capabilities of the mobile devices, uh, through the socket connection, you can uh, connect your desktop browser to your um, to your mobile browser. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty amazing. That's pretty cool. And uh, I also think WebSockets can exist outside of HTML5. I mean, the whole idea of full duplex over port 80 is is compelling no matter what your client is. I absolutely, think. absolutely. So we do have a number of clients available that ranges all, of, all the way from Flash to Silverlight, uh, as well as native support, Java and iOS support uh, for, for WebSockets. Very good point. So what about scalability? How many sockets can I hold open on a given server? It's, it's very interesting that you ask it. Um, there are, so scalability is one thing. Um, one, one very interesting aspect of a WebSocket is that you keep the connection open. So the communication can flow over that open connection. It's not that you build up a connection, you do a request, a response, and then you tear down the connection. Right. Um, the other aspect is, that uh, is the latency that you get on these connections. So in my uh, presentation, I have some comparison uh, that was published uh, recently a Comet company. And the Comet company shares this, uh, these numbers that uh, they have uh, for given, I think, 50,000 users with uh, this many messages per second. Uh, their latency with their highest grade uh, Comet server is around 700 milliseconds. Mm. Wow. And they, they did the same experiment with WebSockets. And with WebSockets, the same metrics with probably 20, 30, 40% more users, they are around 4 milliseconds. Wow. 700 versus 4. That's pretty compelling. Now, that, that is something. I mean, clearly, when you are using a technology that was designed to address a given problem, you yeah. can do so much better than by using workarounds and hacks. That's that right. Using, using the... Um, like HTTP was designed for static document retrieval, right? Anything more than that is a hack. Exactly. You know, what the fact that web forms works at all is testament. Yeah, it's a miracle by itself, right? That's right. That's why it was so impressive. Um, um, well, one of the purposes of that whole the the stateless approach of tear down, you know, create connection, do your work, tear the connection down, was to support many more users per server. And you know, when you maintain a resource continuously on a connection to a server, you're consuming something. It isn't free. There is a price to that. So I'm just wondering where that sort of tops out. Like, what are the consequences of maintaining those connections over long periods of time? Right. So so one of the things, different vendors provide different uh, solutions. Mm -hmm. uh, the solution that Kazin provides uh, allows you to multiplex these connections. So you can have a large number of, of uh, WebSocket connections coming into uh, into um, uh, 
WebSocket gateway, and then connect those uh, multiplex those connections into single uh, backend uh, um, connections. Because you so, only get so many threads, for example, in IIS, you only get so many threads, right. and when you hold one open like that, right? Yeah. But you can you yeah. can cluster these uh, these gateways together as well, yeah. and this way you can serve millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of users. Because uh, it's all parallel. essentially going through HTTP. Yes. So that also addresses the whole security concern, uh, because if you're if you're protocol sniffing HTTP, you're not going to see anything strange there. Exactly. So sometimes we see issues with uh, smart proxies that are. Uh, that are trying to kind of monitor what's happening, and they they are trying to uh, to buffer uh, the HTTP uh, mm -hmm. connections. In these cases, we upgrade uh, the connection to uh, the Kazin gateway, upgrades the connection to uh, WebSocket Secure. That's basically WebSockets over TLS. Yeah. And in that case, uh, we don't have this problem. So this is something that vendors and and uh, and backend infrastructure providers can can solve. Can just easy. be the acronym police here and ask you to find TLS for our listeners. TLS is the security layer, basically that is used both by HTTPS and WebSocket Secure. So that's SSL over HTTP. All right, great. Requirements on the back end for this? Is there, do I have to run a special version of web server or some there kind are, of uh, installation? Yeah, so there are a number of implementations for this. Uh, my company provides uh, infrastructure for this in the form of a WebSocket gateway, but there are a large number of open source uh, gateways out there, which is kind of the validation of the technology. Once you have open source solutions, that kind of means that, yes, this is something that is, is growing and that is, uh, that, uh, that people are, are interested in. In doing so, uh, absolutely. Probably one of the uh, uh, most um, uh, popular open source ones is uh, Socket.io. Uh, there's a lot of uh, information out there on the web. So if you want to get started, uh, that's probably a good place to start. Another um, obvious uh, application or feature that comes to mind is a, uh, a chat, a multi-user chat client. That's been very difficult to do just with standard HTTP using polling or whatever. It gets very murky very easily. I tried it once. <laughs> once. But, uh, you know, when you when your server needs to send out or broadcast, essentially, a message that comes from one person and broadcast that to everybody else that's connected, um, that becomes very challenging unless you have those full duplex connections. Exactly. If you think of uh, how you would have done this in a client-server world. Yeah, uh, that's pretty much how you would need to think about it right. when you're using WebSockets. Yeah. So in the in the client-server world, you probably would not have done low-level TCP socket programming either. You probably would have used some higher-level protocol, something like XMPP. Now, one of the interesting things that Kazing has been doing is implementing higher-level, rich business protocols on top of WebSockets, so that you have access to these protocols in the browser natively. So one of the protocols that we've implemented is XMPP, in addition to JMS and AMQP and a number of others. Mm. So at this point, you're using XMPP in the browser. Your browser is a full-featured, full-blown client right. to the back end, and you are not running your application on your application server. You are running the application in the browser, in the client, using JavaScript, and you're using the high-level XMPP protocol. So all these in protocols that use sockets, anything that does use sockets, exactly, is uh, easily doable with web sockets underneath. Exactly. Yeah. So That's basically, great. your SMTP, POP3, FTP, exactly, anything you can think of. Exactly. So your browser becomes a full-blown client infrastructure 
uh, in your in your network. Peter, can you give us a, a URL to some of your resources or a browser? So the best place to go is uh, kazing.com and alternatively demo.kazing.com uh, on our Kazin, demo. Can you Kazing K A Z I N G K I K A Z I N G K A A Z I N G K A A Z I N G double A. Thank you. Okay. Yes. And uh, we have a number of demos. Number of demos that I described here are available, and you can try them out yourself. Peter Moskowitz, thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik. Hey, can you ever have too many free tools to complement your development skills? I didn't think so. So our friends at Telerik are giving you now more than 30 free products for application development, automated testing, agile project management, and content management. And we're talking free-free. Not a trial, not a demo, but free, complete products supported by a community of over 440,000 developers at Telerik Forums. From free ASP.NET AJAX, ASP.NET MVC, and Silverlight controls, to the free ORM solution and automated testing framework, to free agile management tools and content management systems, all of these and more are available to you for immediate download at Telerik.com slash free stuff. Most of the free products can be used for commercial purposes and give you access to supplemental support resources such as documentation and forms. Go to Telerik.com slash free stuff now and take full advantage of the available free of charge products. And don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. Hey, it's .NET Rocks at WordDev, Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell, and we're here with Tolls Thompson. Hi, Tolls. Hi. It's great Tell to be here. Oh, well, it's great to have you on the show. Thanks. You're uh, talking here about getting your application cloud ready? Yeah. So I'm a co-founder of a company called App Harbor, and we do oh, this yeah. cloud service, and we handle a lot of support ourselves because we, we figured out that this is the way to know our users, to answer support issues. So we know kind of a lot of the issues people run into with trying to deploy their applications to the cloud. So you know, what before, is App Harbor? Yeah, I really want to yeah, talk about sure. App Harbor because um, maybe we don't know. So that. some people may know Heroku, and if they do, it's, it's good, and we are Heroku for .NET. If you don't know Heroku, we are platform-as-a-service startup. Okay. So I'm a .NET developer, and I looked at Azure, and it felt like Azure didn't really do what, what I wanted it to do, and, and I still had to do too much maintenance, and I had to develop a certain way that Microsoft wanted me to develop. So... App Harbor is trying to be more convenient approach and have a lot of conventions so you don't have to configure anything and you can get started by deploying an application in, in 15 seconds. Yeah, it's really about deploying to the cloud, isn't it? It is. App Harbor. Yeah. So just taking my, my web app and I deploy it to App Harbor because when I'm working in a web role in Azure, it's quite a bit different than just deploying to yeah. IIS. And, and that's... Well, we think it's pretty funny because Microsoft has this great history of being compatible all the way. Right. But with Azure, you have to develop code for Azure. Yes. Right. Whereas Different. with App Harbor, we're trying to make you, if you create an C template project, you can just push it straight to App Harbor and it works. So, we, so we're more compatible than Microsoft. I in love Microsoft that. So space. what's hilarious. So, so what are you guys doing? Are you changing my code? Are you changing your code? Yeah. No, we're actually just trying to, to support the default conventions that people already use and, and how they lay out their projects and stuff like that. Huh. Now, are um, you actually running your own cloud center? or no, what, are you, what uh, are you doing? That would be a little ambitious, I guess. And if, if you wanted to do that, we probably wouldn't focus it on .NET. So we're using Amazon Web Services. Um, okay. So we didn't you, believe you could build Azure right on Azure. So, so you're running EC2 custom instances yeah. that, that will take my my web app and push it up. We will receive your code and we will build the code, run unit tests, and we'll deploy it to multiple servers or 
all single server. So I get the platform experience I wanted of yeah. make sure my apps are reliable, make sure yeah. it's scalable, all those good things. And we get not to do all the, the maintenance of the, the physical servers. So. Nice. Oh, that's yeah. great. All right. So how do we get our apps cloud ready? Well, there's, there's kind of few things you, you need to deal with. So a lot of people use local file system. So in my talk, I, I tried to, to build an image gallery. And if you do that and you use the local file system to store your images, mm -hmm. you'll soon find out if you scale the two servers, the second server will, will not show any images or it will show a distinct set of images. So what we need to do is find all those dependencies and all our single point of failures. And we need to extract it and, and, and find better solutions. For file system, there's S3 and there's Azure Blob Storage, which is, is made for storing streams of data, and we can access them from multiple servers at the same time. So, so when you're talking about file, local file storage, are you talking about just like pulling up images and loading them from URLs? Yeah. No, no, no. Oh, sorry, not from the file system. So say you have a web application, and I upload an image, and you've got to store the image somewhere. And okay. We don't store them in the database. If you store them on the file system, the okay. file system is unique to each machine because distributed file systems... So for example, I have a subdirectory that has photos for all of the guests on .NET Rocks. Yeah. And when, when I hit the database, the database returns me a URL to that photo. That's okay because yeah. that's using the URL system. Yeah. It is because it's, it's a different server, so you're offloading it to someone else. Anytime already. you have to drop down and use a file path, yeah. that's exactly. where you then run you're, into problems. Then you're creating problems. Then you're creating problems. Okay. Uh, you may not experience them right away. And I, well, the thesis of my session was really that this is not cloud problems. These are scalability issues. Right. Yeah, yeah, uh, but I most agree. people didn't notice them until they moved to the cloud because they probably just put more memory in the same server and kept yeah. upgrading the single server they had, so they didn't notice before. Right. Uh, other whammies besides uh, file? Well, there's database options as well. Um, SQL Azure gives you 50 gigs of, of storage. And they just raised to 150. Raised to 150 by the end of the year. Right. Uh, so, but it's, 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 I guess relying on Microsoft to, to up the limit is like uh, relying on Intel to produce new CPUs. Right. And there's, there's only limits to, to how much they can go and how fast they can do it. So yeah. we need to make sure our applications work well uh, in every environment. Yeah. So there's something like sharding and partitioning of our databases. So we've got to divide it uh, to multiple databases on multiple yeah. servers. So that's the solution. It's to also solution. a very scalable strategy too. Yeah, it is. But you're trading complexity for scalability. Well, you, you get some more complexity, and, and I'm not trying to say that we should architect our blocks to handle the load of Facebook. That would be nonsense. Um, but we should also make sure that we got the right extension points and the right abstractions in place. Right. So if we have a file system that's using file repository or whatever we call it, and let's show that we can implement that interface on, on Amazon um, with Microsoft or Google's cloud technology. So right. yeah. it's just changing the dependency. So if we're talking about ASP.NET apps, what about session storage? Yeah, that's, that's another thing. Uh, session storage and, and caching. Um, so we've got to make sure either to use a, a shared session state server. Right. And if we use a single shared session state server, then we've got a new scalability issue. Mm. So we've got to use something like memcached or membase and have a cluster of those. Again, we don't need to do this right away because, because we use ASP.NET. It's already in there. There's already the abstraction. So we can just implement the provider when we need to scale. Uh, so what right. if we're using SQL Server as our... Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> so sorry. So what if we're using SQL Server as our, as our session storage? Yeah. That's okay. Yeah, that, we're that already, would work as well. Yeah. Um, it's maybe as performant as, as Memcast or Redis or something like that. True. But, but it works. But now then we have to make everything serializable once yeah. we get out of uh, yeah. process. But that's true of anything out of process. Anything out of process. Right. That's, and and that's and sort of the basic thing is if you start in process, 
when you go to scale, you'll have problems, and yeah. then you have to go back and refit all the code yeah. to get out of process. Yeah. If you even start with the simplest out of process approach, at least you're dealing with that in your app exactly. right off the bat, and yeah. then you can go to more advanced sets and stores later on. Exactly. And, and for my application, I cobbled it directly to the file API in .NET, so I would have uh -huh. to go into all my actions and change it, and all the messages would be rewritten because I didn't create an abstraction for it. Right. Yeah. And, and the session state, well, my belief is we shouldn't use the session state as, as much as we may do. Mm -hmm. And I wrote in classic ASP.NET application, ASP, uh, application back in the days. Yeah, yeah. I just had this session object, and hey, that's my user, he signed in. Uh, and if the server would reboot or if the session would be abandoned, mm. the user would have to sign in again. Right, right. So we should use something like cookies and, and, and use the session as an immutable cache for our data. And True. look at the cookie, find the key. If, if the key is in the session, we could use it. And if the key is not in the session or the version is invalid, let's, let's hit the database again. Sure. Okay. So. It's funny. The session ID is stored as a cookie anyway. Yeah. yeah. yeah it's, it's just a sort of loop back to a cookie. Yeah. Anything else, Charles? No. I think that's... So you do those three things, scale, no problem. Yeah. Um, well, that's also, you, ha you have to take care of, in, in, in the cloud, there's machines crash all the time. Yes. Um, but, but Machine what? Machines crash. Instances, oh, machines instances crash. Instances dies yeah, and yeah. terminates and stuff like that. But right. the thing is, that, that always happens in, in our yeah. local environment. So yeah. machines do crash. And if our only recovery strategy is, is finding a technician who isn't drunk and who has the right spare parts, then we should probably think about if we could architect our system to... Avoid requiring a single person to be at work the day of, yeah. of the incident. So, and when you when you on app harbor across multiple servers, how do you handle the load balancing? I presume you take care of yeah, that. For yeah, yeah, we take care of it. So it's part of the platform stack. We have an nginx load balancer, which is this piece of Russian software, which is is really cool. It's it's free and it's the most efficient web server ever made. Um, and because it runs on Linux, we can use. We don't have to use the Microsoft Windows overhead. Is that on the how much uh, how much vodka does it consume? Okay. <laughs> Quite a lot. <laughs> so when you're low, one of the little whammies I've run into with load balancing is that if you're used to using remote IP in ASP.NET, uh, that's the IP of the uh, incoming machine, yeah. which True. when you don't have a load balancer is the user's machine, and yeah. when you do have a load balancer, it's the load balancer. Hmm. It is, and, and that's exactly the same in our case. So there's actually a, a de facto standard for this that's called the X4 Wadded 4, mm -hmm. which is a header that load balancer always will set. So if you buy an appliance or if you buy a physical load balancer everywhere, you get this header set. So the thing IP. is, it, it's true because ASP.NET doesn't take care, of the, take care of these headers. You have to do it mm -hmm. yourself. And yeah. we would love to, in the future, to inject code into people's application so that they didn't have to deal with it. So we just do it automatically for them. Right. Um, so the remote IP always gave the IP yeah. of the user rather than the IP to load balancer. Exactly. But as it is, when you, as soon as you get down to this load balancing path, you need to check a different HTTP header to get the actual IP Exactly. Address. And so I only know that pain because I've had that pain. <laughs> we had this pain as well. And, yeah. and one of my friends told me that, hey, you're sending out this uh, reset password email and you're including the IP address of the load balancer in the email. And, <laughs> oh, so, so, we need to fix something. So Yeah. Yeah, it's usual. Tolls, do you have a blog or a place online where we could read more of well, your work? Well, I'm, I'm on Twitter, uh, and AppHarbor has a blog, so blogapphaba.com, um, and AppHarbor on Twitter, or Trotom, T-R-O-E-T-H-O-M, on Twitter, just to make it as difficult as possible. Okay. <laughs> nice. Good enough. Thanks, Tolls. Thanks. Tolls Thompson. At Franklin's Net right now, you can get a DVD with over 11 hours of Billy Hollis on Silverlight 4 or 14 hours of Sahil Malik on SharePoint 2010, each for only $6.95. Order online at www.franklins.net. Are you looking to change jobs? 
Infusion Development has offices in New York City, Toronto, London, Dubai, and Poland. Infusion has hired a whole handful of Happy.net Rocks listeners. Contact me for an introduction at carl at franklins.net. Hey, it's .NET Rocks at Ordev. We're at the end of a hallway, all the way down by the big Ordev sign. Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell here from .NETrocks.com, and we're here with Robbie Ingerbratson. Hi, Robbie. Hi, guys. How are you? Good. Yeah, it's a great place. Really, really fun con- uh, conference. Have you been here before? No, it was my, uh, well, I've, I've been to Sweden before. This is my first time at the conference, though. Yeah. And what are you yeah. speaking on? Um, user experience. No so kidding. I'm, uh, yeah, I'm doing a couple of talks that are... Um, uh, design principles for developers. So it's it's not any particular technology. It's all about design. That's right. Yeah. In fact, um, I, so one of the talks is about typography, and there's a little bit of technology in that, talking about rendering and, and some things along those lines. But other than that, it is uh, completely independent of any technology. Well, and I think that typography is one of those things that a lot of people just don't pay enough attention to, and yet it influences almost everything. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, I, I was thinking about it this morning. Um, you know what we say a picture is worth a thousand words or whatever this mm-hmm. sort of implication that You know what else is worth that, a thousand words? Yeah. The thousand words. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean that, that was exactly it. Like there like there's this conciseness to words, sure. right? Yeah. That um you just you know, so a picture is worth a thousand words if you're trying to say certain things, but there's yeah. like imagine if we, you know, the web without words, right? Right. right. So I, I think to some extent typography is like the fundamental bit of any UI. It's the thing probably that that carries a UI. Yeah. So. Well, I mean, you talk about, you know, Microsoft sort of revolution around Metro. Metro is really a typography more than anything else. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, absolutely. That's the, the real sense of spareness that you get from Metro comes from that typeface. Yeah, and, and people love it, too. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. People really respond to it. And it, it's funny because everybody talks about how it's like an, an authentically digital experience and stuff. And I think a lot of that comes from the fact that, that you know, w- w- you're removing imagery, you're removing a lot of texture, you're removing a lot of sort of the... The fake realness, right? That you, you that you have in, in yeah, the, a lot I think of design. The pre- and I'm looking from the WinPhone Seven implementation of Metro. Yeah. The, the to me the part that's authentically digital is this sense that the screen is much larger than the screen you have. Yeah. The text tends to roll oh, off the edge of the yeah. screen. Yeah. Something you'd never do on paper, but makes perfect sense that you could swipe it and the text keeps. And you flowing. wouldn't do that on the web either. No, I, that's I think interesting. It works in that form factor. Yeah. That's really interesting. I hadn't thought about it that way, but I totally agree with you. Yeah, yeah. And that's, that's really interesting. You know, it, as as cliche as authentically digital sounds, it's this idea of you're using the t- the typeface in a way that only makes sense in a digital form. Yeah. So, what are some of the pitfalls that people fall into in, when trying to do their own design? And I, you know, even. Uh, I, I guess some some of the, the 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 simple ones that you can call out, are, but some of the not so obvious pitfalls, maybe. Well, you know, yes. So it's interesting. The, the talks that I'm giving sort of take the backwards approach of that. So rather than trying to point out what people are doing wrong, it's sort of like how do you build people up so they do things right? Okay. I guess if that makes sense. And so maybe that's what I'd say is the pitfall is a lot okay. of people. You know, there, there's sort of this. Um, this idea that developers are inherently like you know the opposite of designers, right? right? Oh, yeah. They're sort of like two sides of the spectrum, and I think that that's um, a false perspective. In the you know, I, I think design. I mean, when I think about what people do, what designers do, it. it so let's like be clear. I mean, there there is a difference in how designers think sure. about things and developers, sure. but. But where there's the same is I think both of these are creative problem solvers in yeah. the sense that, you know, Absolutely. what you do as a developer is a very, very creative thing. It's also, I think, misunderstood and undervalued by people who are not in the space. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. And yeah. undervalued is a good point. I mean, if design hasn't been valued in the past, so a developer never had to 
learned that. Never really had yeah. to do that. So now that, okay, well, your design matters. Well, and so a developer that, can learn. And how that's to do sort of it. the idea behind the talk is that I, I actually think that the, you know the developer mind is is actually you know attuned to to design principles. And mm -hmm. so if if you can kind of you know. Um, sort of get the basics down. I actually yeah. think that developers have the potential to be great designers, especially with something like Metro, you know, right, where right. it is rather prescriptive and, and a lot of what you're doing is really just ordering, you know, information in a, in a structure and content. So. so it's less of a paradigm shift and more of an expansion of knowledge. That is a great way to say you it. You like yeah. that? I love yeah. that. Okay. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Okay, because you're already thinking the right way. You just don't know the bits you need to know to actually be successful with it. Yeah, I think that's a great way to say so it. So I'm it's, hoping you're going to lay the bits on us. <laughs> is contrast one of those things that uh, we sort of take for granted, especially on the web? I mean, you look at a web page, and when there's so much going on, you really don't know what you should be looking at. That's a great one. So, um, so contrast is actually so. It, so there's there's these principles that govern sort of how you use space. So contrast, and then um, sort of, I guess uh, the buddy to it is similarity, right? Yeah. And so a lot of what you're doing when when you're managing you know, information on a page is you're managing the contrast and the similarity. So yeah. when we put things together or say somehow these things are similar, even like with color or shape or, you know, spatial arrangement or whatever, yeah. you're, you're making a statement that these things are related. Yeah. Um, conversely, if you create contrast between things, then you're making a statement that these things are different. And so one of the things that our brain does is when we encounter, you know, anything visual, the first thing we're doing is scanning for that. We're looking right. for what's the same and what's different. Yeah. And so you're exactly right. So I, and it, it's funny because I think a mistake of, you know, the developer designer or the untrained designer is to seek out sameness instead of seeking out contrast. Ah. So that, that, that's yeah. astute. That's an interesting, uh, interesting that you pick up on that. Yeah, seek out sameness being consistency. You know, yeah, right. I like consistency when I develop. I like all the text boxes to have the same font, blah, blah, blah. So the, the word that I think it kind of captures what you really want is unity which oh. is different than similarity meaning that things feel unified like they feel like they belong like you're presenting but, a whole exactly but not not without um you know internal contrasts hmm. so it's, it's okay to vary things but you should understand why you're varying things and what you're varying yeah and i guess it also depends on what you're doing if you're doing a sort of a portal page where you have a lot of different options and things you can do um uh, that's a difficult problem to solve because, well, you know, one, th one thing that really works is a tag cloud that really yeah. works well because you can see at one glance where the important things are by the size of the word. Yeah, and they're, the they're very, it's, the it's the contrast in, in, between, in the sizes that, right. that gives you that. But, you know, if, you're, if you have a portal where you can jump into several different applications all at once, should the buttons for the applications you use most of the time be a little bigger and a little brighter and a little more higher contrast, you know, that's, that yeah. would seem weird. Yeah. It would seem very strange. Yeah, exactly. But I think you, the big thing you get from a tag cloud is that you're after what is the most important thing. And rather than just ranking them, they're, right. you know, letting them pop out of their own accord. This is the, the classic UI bungle that we've seen, you know, from the last 10 years is the typical point of sale uh, you know, VB program that has just a screen full of buttons of every different color so that, yeah, exactly. you know, it's just, yeah. what? You know, everything is on one screen. And so that, I guess, you, we could, you know, coming back to the sameness <laughs> and contrast thing, then you kind of have the opposite problem where nothing yeah. is the same. And so now That's you have right. no way to, to create those relationships. And it takes you, and it's talking about scanning. 
Yeah. I mean, you'll sit there and look at that thing for five minutes before you realize which button you actually have to push. That's right. Yeah. So, so how do you take a, a problem like that and deconstruct it into, you know, what are we talking about? Multiple levels of wizards or something like that. But then, see, here's the thing. With a screen like that, that has all these buttons and crazy things, once you learn it and once your brain identifies, ah, it's the maroon button I need to press when I need to do this, you can get very fast at it. But learning it is well, and, really you know, And that's a trade-off that you need to be aware of. So, in fact, um, so I do a lot of design you know, as a consultant. And one of my favorite questions um, when we're sort of beginning to understand a user base is you know, to ask about whether or not your users are experts. And, and what, right. that, what I mean by that question is, is this something that somebody's going to use casually once in a while, or are they right. going to spend a lot of time with it? Because right. you'll, you'll make those trade-offs. That's right. You know, and and you, a lot of times, that's exactly what you're doing, is you're sacrificing sort of ease of discoverability right. for ease of, of long-term use. This is yeah. back to all the way back to Alan Cooper's Absolutely. conversation about UI design, where he talked about a sovereign app is an app that owns a big chunk of screen real estate that you put a substantial amount of time into. And so efficiency is more important than discoverability, that it, keyboard shortcuts and all those sorts of things to be really fast at it. You know, it's the outlooks and the words of the world as opposed to, you know, an IM client, which, while it may be somewhat persistent, isn't a focus for you and it needs to be very discoverable because you need to relearn how it works fairly often when you, when yeah, you go back Yeah, that's to great. It. That's really interesting. So it'll be interesting to see what Windows 8 does there now yeah. that we're going full screen with just about everything. It'll be yeah. interesting to see how uh, we well, end up using that real I've estate. always had a sense that Windows 8 was not for us, right? That you know, I look at how my wife struggles with the stacks of windows on a screen. Yeah. She tends to maximize and wants to look at one thing at a time. And, and, and she's not alone. I think she's far more common than we are. Right? I think you're and, right. And, you know, the yeah. fact that Windows 8 went away from, there are no stacks of windows. There are panes of windows. They slide one after the next. It's just, a, I think, a, an easier metaphor for non-technical people. That's interesting. And yet, yeah. when you use a Windows 8 Metro app, which I think you're talking about, the mm -hmm. Metro when you use those, they're full screen. Always. There is no Chrome. Yeah. And when you bring and you but you can always flip to another one. True. But they tend the natural behavior is to flip from one app to the next. You can very carefully split the screen, although Windows 8 decides where the split is. Yeah. Which yeah. But you know, even your even your wife could use Alt Tab yep. to go through, you know, full screens. Does she though? But so that's interesting. Yeah, do I don't it. think people do that. I people don't do I don't it. even no, know about Alt Tab. I think only we do it. Yeah. Right. Technical yeah. people tend to do that, and regular people hunt for things. They, they you know, they yeah. the taskbar was a, a metaphor they understood right. that they could go find apps that way. Minimize the one that's there and maximize right. the, the next, next one. one. So, yeah. if, if you think about the the operating system as a as an OS, then it's interesting because you could argue then that they have in the past sort of given a lot of functionality to the experts, mm -hmm. right? But not given a lot of functionality to sort of the novice. Right. The I, I tend to agree, and, and maybe that's why sort of the more novice computer user likes an iPad or sure. a mobile device or something. Because you know, it has these aspects that you're talking about that do make it a lot easier. It's simpler. Yeah. And, well, it's, and it's more constrained it's, as well. It, it, and, and largely because that's all that's been built, right? This is less intent and more the point of design, right? They've only gotten yeah. so far in that. I expect the iPad to get more complex as it gets older, the same ways that Windows has gotten more complex as it mm -hmm. gets older. But we've sort of had this crystalline moment that that's what people like about that product. And it seems like Windows 8 is going back to simplification. In a lot of different ways. I mean, yeah. the technical footprint, the, the memory footprint, and so forth, the Windows oh, yeah. 8 is smaller, too. They've, they've come to recognize they need to lighten up. Yeah. And uh, it's a good direction to go in. But it, to me, it feels like Windows 8 is so much more a consumer product than it is mm. the professional desktop 
user's product. Well, that was definitely the vibe at Build. It was, I, it was I funny. Totally agree. People either got it, like either got that this is an exciting release because it's right. it's gonna you know kind of make the circle bigger, bring people in who might have been intimidated otherwise, or else they were kind of mad about it because yeah. they felt like they were losing the windows they loved. You know, well, yeah. it was both, and and I wasn't mad about it, but because I'm you know it's an operating system, I don't get mad about an operating yeah. system. Um, but you know, I can see where businesses might have a. Uh, uh, hesitation in adopting it because of the lack of the desktop, you know, metaphor and navigation that they have, that they're used to. It, it, that's really interesting. It'll, it'll, on the, at the same time, a lot of businesses have been adopting iPads, though. Right. So yeah, that's true. Yeah, so I, I think um, yeah, it, it, it's, it's, it's an interesting play for Microsoft, and I think we're, an interesting we're seeing something really cool go down. I'm, I'm excited to have this conversation in a year. And yeah, see, uh, for sure. See yeah. what we learn. So I, maybe you can come back on the show then. Or maybe we'll see you next year. I'd love year to do it. Uh, yeah, Georgia. that'd be great. All right, Robbie, thank you very much for talking to us. Thanks, guys. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, Go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got transmitter van.